This is an ABC podcast. Hey, so how much are you getting paid? If you're a woman, chances are it's not as much as your guy friend who's the same age. We all know the gender pay gap is real. Why then is it still a huge problem? G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for Hack, and in a bit we're going to get into some new research that might surprise you. But first, a story that sent shockwaves around the world. Hack. I am so sick and tired of old men. Shut the f*** up about our bodies! On Triple J. On your feeds, in your group chats, it would have been pretty hard to escape the global backlash to a US court's decision to wind back abortion rights. There have been protests around the world, even here in Australia. Hundreds protested outside the US consulate in Perth earlier today. So what exactly has happened here and what's it going to mean for women in America? Claudia Long takes a look. Tonight, the Supreme Court's decision sending shockwaves across the nation. Forcing women to carry pregnancies against their will will kill them. It means that tens of millions of women across the US do not have their right to an abortion guaranteed by the Constitution. We're not going to obey. Nearly 50 years of guaranteed access to abortion in America is over with the Supreme Court of the United States overturning the right for access to an abortion, a decision known as Roe v. Wade that was made way back in the 70s. A number of polls point to most Americans actually supporting a pregnant person's right to choose what to do with their pregnancy, making this decision appear to be a pretty massive political win for a vocal minority. The court is stacked with judges appointed by former President Donald Trump, and a draft ruling last month did hint that this decision to leave abortion laws in the hands of individual states was coming. While many Americans aren't surprised, they are angry. It's not the will of the people, and this country is supposed to run off of the will of the people. But we're not going to stop. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they say. Again, abortions will continue. They just won't be legal, and women will die from botched abortions. Hundreds of thousands have turned out on the streets to fight for their rights, but there are many Americans who are thrilled about the court's decision. We will not fully celebrate until abortion is eradicated fully from our land. While abortion looks set to remain legal in some areas of the US, bans were instantly put in place in 13 states and more are expected to follow suit as well. While 13 out of 51 might not sound like much, it's going to have a massive impact on millions of Americans who are trying to get a pregnancy termination, either making it impossible or hugely expensive or risky to get one. One of the 13 states which put instant restrictions in place is Arkansas, where abortion is almost entirely banned, even in instances of rape or incest, or a minor becoming pregnant. The BBC spoke with clinic workers in the town of Little Rock just after they'd found out this news, including staff member Jennifer Thompson. I have to tell them, I'm sorry, but there's nothing I can do for you. I'm sorry that your boyfriend beats you every day and that he rapes you all the time. There's nothing I can do. You're going to have to find somewhere else to go. I mean, I can give them information to help them try, but it's heartbreaking, man. Like, you know, this place saved my life, literally. Protesters who are worried that this is just the beginning of a rollback on other laws protecting human rights have a reason to fear. One of the judges who overturned Roe v. Wade wrote in his decision that the court should also reconsider rulings protecting same-sex relationships and marriage and also access to contraception. We realise that we need to band together women, people of colour and LGBT people to stand up for our rights, that there are people that are threatened by us for whatever reasons. You know, and it all stems from hate. It all stems from fear. Even though access to abortion was restricted just a few days ago, patients visiting the clinic where Dr Yashika Robinson works in Alabama are already unable to access care. 
Here she is explaining the situation to CNN. First, we all cried, and then we had to gather ourselves to decide how we was going to take care of these patients and what we do. But what we did was we divided the patients up, those who we had already started to um, care for, who had already received medication, and we felt that it would be malpractice not to complete their procedures. We put them into one room. We took the people who were here for first visits, and we had about 15 people who had come for first visits, and some of them had traveled from as far as Texas. We put them into another room. We told them that we would not be able to provide any care for them, and we apologized profusely. Many of them broke down and cried, and we cried with them. Hack on Triple J. Claudia Long with that update. And remember, if that story's raised some tough things for you, you're not alone. You can call Lifeline at any time on 13 11 14 or 1800 Respect, 1800 737 732. We're getting your messages on this one. Somebody says, it's my body. That means it's my choice. And Pete says, it's funny how the US can change a constitutional right for abortion for women, but can't change constitutional rights to guns and gun control. The people deserve better. Just a warning now that this next interview is going to discuss sexual abuse. If you might find that triggering, it might be a good idea to switch off for about 10 minutes. I want to speak with someone who understands more than most the consequences of this decision in the United States. Dina Zerlot lives in the state of Alabama and she found out months after she was raped that she was pregnant and the fetus that she was carrying was suffering severe complications. But because of the law in her state, she couldn't get an abortion. She had no option but to give birth. Look, Dina's story is really powerful. It's very traumatic and she's with us now to tell it. Dina, thank you very much for speaking with us on Hack. No problem. Can you explain what happened to you? Whenever I was 17 years old, I was in high school and um, I had a friend and he was a trusted friend, somebody who I had been with numerous times in groups and alone. And he had come over to my house to tutor me in math. And I'm not sure what switched over for him. And he ended up assaulting me that night. And I was extremely traumatized in the aftermath, suicidal and dissociated. I wouldn't know for several months that I was pregnant. At the time I was suffering from an autoimmune disorder that already was making me have extremely strange cycles. And um, I was athletic and tall. And so whenever I would get sick, it was nothing that I would associate with pregnancy. Like I said, I was extremely dissociated and my abdomen didn't swell. In fact, I lost weight. But finally, my mother, she took me to the doctor to check for STIs and pregnancy. And at that point, they found out I was pregnant almost eight months along. And within a few minutes of that, they did an ultrasound and told me that the fetus was suffering from a congenital neural tube defect called hydranencephaly. And they told me that it was too late for me to have a abortion later in pregnancy, especially in Alabama. No one performs those. And if I could travel out of state, but my family, they weren't wealthy, we were poor, and it was going to cost, you know, upwards of ten to $20,000. So I was pretty much forced to give birth at that point. And within a year of her being born, suffering constantly, uh, in and out of the hospital constantly, she passed away. 
and that pretty much set me on definitely the darkest path possible for a person to go on emotionally. It's a really, really sad story, Dina, and you've written about what it was like to be forced to have a baby. You were 18 years old after right. you had been raped. And yes. I want to know what it was like enduring a pregnancy that you didn't want to, knowing there was nothing you could do about it. I mean, the rape itself, you are so powerless in that moment. It's so violent in that moment. And then being forced to carry a pregnancy as a result, also a pregnancy on top of it, that you know you're just staring grief in the face. The the farther along you get, it's just heading towards you at this speed that you can't mitigate. And the feeling of carrying that pregnancy was tantamount to the rape for me. It felt constantly like some that it was like reoccurring, but in a different context, and that my own body was the perpetrator of that assault. I was it was surreal and bizarre and horrifying and humiliating. What kind of decisions would you have liked to have had access to? What do you think should have happened? I wish I had been eligible for um, an abortion later in pregnancy, which is definitely something that exists even up to eight months as late as I was for cases such as mine, where you are encountering a pregnancy with a fetus that has a congenital birth defect that is not compatible with life, especially coupled with the fact that at the time I was actively suicidal. My mental state was just in ruins. The impact that it's had on your life, it was 16 years ago, but I imagine it still affects your life now. Oh, it it definitely still affects my life now. Um, I mean, of course, I I was a teenager. I was, by the time Zoe passed away, I was 19 years old. And I was really, I was trying to put some sort of life together with this massive identity loss. You know, I was really good in school. I was good at sports. I had ambitions. And within just so quickly and so quietly, it just all went away. It just all left me and in its place was all this trauma and grief and panic and anxiety that just never stopped. And, um, and so I, after Zoe passed away, I was in such deep depression that I couldn't keep up with my, with my, my grades. I couldn't get out of bed hardly. And, uh, so I had to quit college. It, you know, this robbed me of a future, of an education, of experiences that at that point, you know, in in the life of a teenager, that this, you're building this bedrock of who you're going to be as you grow up and the things that you hold close to you and the values that you want to cultivate. And in the place of that, I had this mass of grief that I couldn't walk away from. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese and I'm speaking with Dina Zerlot from Alabama about her experience of being unable to get an abortion in the US. Dina, I imagine the last few days in particular have been really tough for you. How did you feel when you heard Roe v. Wade had been overturned and that abortion rights were being rolled back in your country? Well, of course, you know, we had suspected it for a long time and ever since the brief had been dropped. And of course, I've been, you know, active in and out of reproductive justice here in Alabama. And it's a constant struggle in the state itself. 
So there's always almost a feeling like it's always on the verge of ending. But of course, even when you expect something terrible to happen and you know it's coming, even when it happens, it doesn't change that shock that you feel, that sick, sinking feeling, and that it's final and here it is. And now we have to deal with the consequences. It, it was triggering and upsetting for sure. How many women do you reckon have had similar experiences to you and are really just suffering in silence? I can't even fathom. I mean, one of the things that I keep being told whenever I tell everything, and it happens every single time I, I try to tell my story, is that what happened to me was an exception. The statistics of it are so low. I mean, I've had women who've come up to me who are in were in abusive relationships and abortion was the only way they were able to take themselves out of that relationship whenever they found out they were pregnant and they were going to be stuck with a person who was going to continue to abuse them until something broke. And they're expecting you to bring a child into that situation when we have so few social programs in place for people who are suffering abuse. We barely can sustain the children we have in our social care system. Now, mothers aren't supported in this country to begin with. You don't get paid maternity leave unless your um, employer provides it for you. Things like that. It's way more women who are encountering very similar or even the same issues that I ran into. They want to say that it's a small percentage of us, but it doesn't seem small to me. These circumstances aren't small. They're not exceptional. They happen. They're real. Dina, there are probably a lot of young people in Australia listening to your story right now, watching what's happening in the US, and they're feeling a lot of emotions, but they're also not directly impacted by what's going on. Do you have any message for those young people and women in particular in other parts of the world who really feel strongly about this, but maybe aren't impacted directly? Just because, you know, you are in a place where you might have that access and and you aren't necessarily afraid of losing it at any point. You know, it's whenever you stop talking about it, it's whenever you stop working to deconstruct the stigma, because there's always going to be those people who are eager to strip you of autonomy and continue to speak out, continue to support people in countries and cities that are experiencing what we're experiencing now. Support is a is such a major thing right now, is such a major part of this process. And it doesn't matter if you're here on the ground or across the sea, we can use your voice. Dina, I can imagine it's so hard to speak about what's happened to you, but I know that you want people to hear a real life experience. And yeah. I really thank you for sharing that with us on Hack Today. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Hack on Triple J. That was Dina Zerlot, and she's written a really powerful piece about her story for the Huff Post. You can also find her on socials and follow her advocacy there as well. And just a reminder of those helplines if you do need some support, Lifeline on 13 11 14 or 1800 Respect as well. So obviously there is a lot of focus on the US, but what about in Australia? Could something like this Supreme Court decision happen here in Australia? Um, let's find out a bit more about the situation here. Bonnie Corbin is with Mari Stopes Australia. That's an organisation that provides contraception and safe abortion services around the world. And she's with us now. G'day, Bonnie. Thanks for coming on Hack. 
Thank you. What are the rules around abortion in Australia? Is it legal everywhere? I imagine it's probably different in every state and territory, right? It is. It's a, it's a big question. Technically, yes, it's legal everywhere. Part of our issue is that we're at the end of a series of decriminalisations across Australia in terms of state and territory legislation. So in the last five years, we've seen the Northern Territory, ACT, New South Wales, Queensland, um, South Australia just last week released their regulations. Um, and we've kind of had this sort of domino effect of decriminalisation where we're, we've remo removed references to patients in the criminal code, but it hasn't removed all references to abortion in the criminal codes. And in Western Australia, there's still a few little glitchy parts that need tidying up. It, all in all, you can access an abortion in Australia and you wouldn't even know it's been criminalised. In essence, we've integrated abortion into our health systems, not terribly well and not everywhere. So in terms of where you access abortion, it can be a postcode lottery. You might have had a great experience. It could have even been free or you might have had a difficult experience finding a provider and it might have been costly. But at the end of the day, you can access abortion. There are complex uh, legal systems that need to be ironed out and um, sort of um, clarified over the next five years or so, but it will happen. And in terms of our risk of an abortion ban or some sort of national level ban, it just wouldn't happen because we have a bipartisan federal government commitment to abortion equity by 2030. And Bonnie, I imagine it's probably different for people in really remote areas, regional areas might have a lot less access. Is that the case? In some cases, in in a number of states, that is the case. But it can, as I said, it can be a bit of a postcode lottery. So for some regions, they have really great GPs or they have a really good health and hospital service or they have a OBGYN in the local hospital that offers brilliant surgical abortion care and medical abortion care. It's a, it's a real patchwork. So for some people, they might be quite in a city and you'd think it'd be quite easy, but they need to travel a longer distance or they have great trouble sort of finding a provider that they can reach out to. And someone in a small town might just have a brilliant GP that's trained in medical abortion and that's the abortion that they'll choose to have. So it's a real mix up and that's part of the problem is people still fly between states and territories in Australia to access abortion care and we need it to just be the same everywhere so that people don't need to navigate these complexities and it can be really easy. And I, I we do have some... Yep. Sorry, I was just going to say, I reckon the pandemic would have had a big impact on that as well in terms of people not being able to fly to different states and territories. It definitely did and in the end we ended up flying doctors more than we would fly patients. So we had doctors kind of moving around in ways that we didn't have before. And in Queensland in particular, we had a light plane that went up to different regional areas to keep particular clinics staffed for a while there. We do have some really good news in the last week that's with South Australia and their abortion law moving through to regulations on Thursday last week. It means that we can now have teleabortion nationally. So it means that anyone across the country can call a teleabortion number, have a consult with a doctor, and if they're eligible and they want to proceed with a medical abortion, they can have these medical abortion tablets sent to their home. So this is the first time in Australian history we'll ever have that, and that will come into effect on July the 7th. You know, abortion is not something that's talked about a lot in society, but it's probably a lot more common than many people would realise, right? Yes, definitely. About in Australia, between one in three and one in four women and pregnant people have had an abortion. So it is very common. 
unplanned pregnancies are really common, about one in two pregnancies are unplanned. It doesn't mean that those are all going to proceed to abortion. So we say it like we've got five pregnancy options and that's abortion, adoption, care, kinship care and parenting. So there's lots of different ways that an unplanned pregnancy can go. Um, but definitely abortion is a choice that a number of women and pregnant people make in Australia. And I think it's that thing about every one of us knows someone who's had an abortion. And if you feel like you don't know someone who's had an abortion, it's probably that they just haven't been able to speak out about it. Where does Australia sit globally? I mean, you, you mentioned that, you know, what happened in the US could never happen here. Um, does the, do the safeguards that we have in place, does everything that we have in place um, seem pretty well from a global point of view? From a global perspective, yes. I mean, I feel like a bit like never say never on on some things. It's For us, the challenge is more at the state and territory level where we do get anti-choice build bills tabled from time to time. So we do get challenges in state and territory parliaments, but it's very unlikely they'd proceed or it's more like they'd introduce little nuances of legislation that might make things a bit complex, but they would, it would never be criminalised again in this way. In terms of the global setting, Australia is tracking really well. And it's important to know that amongst the terrible situation that the US is in, globally, we're tracking really well. And we have had a lot of progress in recent years with abortion decriminalised in many countries across the world. And Australia is one of those that's contributed to that. All right. Bonnie Corbin from Mari Stopes Australia, really appreciate you coming on to Hack. Thank you. And Amber on the text line says, I had an abortion in an abusive relationship and I can't imagine my life if I didn't have access to that. I feel for every woman having to go through this. Hack. Women working full-time in key management personnel roles are earning on average $100,000 less each year than their male counterparts. On Triple Jack. We're changing topics now, but diving into another really big issue for women, pay because there's some research out today that's really worrying. It's found the gender pay gap is ridiculously big and it doesn't matter how old or experienced women are, actually things tend to get worse the older you get. On top of that, women aren't getting promotions and management positions because they're not working full time. Maybe this is you. Have you discovered that you're being paid a lot less than male colleagues? Did you confront your boss about it? I wanna know, one 36 you can message in too. Ellie Grounds looks into it. We're all sitting around talking about pay and Australia's medium wage and and that sort of thing. And during that conversation, I realised that uh, both of these gentlemen were being paid more than me, uh, which, you know, it happens, uh, but you don't expect it to happen when they literally report to you. When I started working on this story a few days ago, I put a call out to hear from any women who had discovered male colleagues who did the same job as them were getting paid more than them. A handful of women got in touch, but none of them had that story. What they had found out was that men who did jobs below them, yet literally their subordinates, were earning a higher salary. I was, for all intents and purposes, uh, their direct report. Like, you know, the person who was editing that particular section of that organisation's coverage. Amy Ramakis is a political reporter with Guardian Australia. A few years ago, at a different job, she was promoted, in title but not in salary. In her new role, she had male journalists reporting to her every day. But when it came to payday, they were taking home more than her. And you would think that the person who had that title was going to be paid at least on par. Uh, and I absolutely was not. In fact, it was it was quite a gap 
between what they were getting paid and what I was getting paid. Women getting paid less than men is hardly a new story. But for the first time in Australia, we now have data on the gender pay gap that is broken down by age. And it's pretty grim. What we're seeing is that uh, there is continues to be a significant gender pay gap at every age. Mary Wooldridge is the director of the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. It's the government agency which has compiled this data on the pay of more than 3 million Australian employees. She says there is no age bracket where women don't earn less than men. There's a gender pay gap uh, immediately that you enter the workforce. Um, this is about 2.5%. Um, um, and this is also shown through other research that's done that shows that men's undergraduate uh, starting salaries out of undergraduate are higher than women's in just about every field of study. One of the worst industries for this, dentistry. Where men earn 12% more than women as their starting salary, um, which is quite phenomenal. Okay, this story is all about data. So let's do a quick numbers whip around. In the under 24 age group, for every $10 men are earning, women are only earning $9.75. And between 25 and 34, for every 10 bucks guys are getting, women are only getting $8.75. The gap then keeps getting bigger and bigger until we get to the 45 to 54 age bracket where it hits its worst. With women earning on average 31.9% or nearly 41 grand less than men. Okay, but if what the Queen, I'm talking about Beyonce obviously, says is true... then why aren't we getting paid properly for it? Well, it, it's contributed to by a number of things. Um, partly the fact that uh, highly feminised industries, such as care industries and education, uh, are lower paid than um, many other masculinised industries, for example. There is bias and discrimination in recruitment from day one and promotions and how people are supported in their early stages of their career. And the other thing, of course, is women are still disproportionately the ones taking time out of their careers to bring up children, which is why Mary says we need... ..gender-neutral parental leave policies. And what about if you're a woman with her sights set on becoming CEO? Yes! Yes! Yes, yes, yes. Well, you better not be planning to drop down to part-time hours. At no point are women, more than 50% of women, uh, working full-time in the workforce. Um, this is also significant because 90% of managers uh, are working full-time, but less than 50% of women are working full-time. So there's this disconnect at the most senior levels between the way women want to or need to work and the opportunities to be at the most senior levels of an organisation. Amy, who you heard from earlier, reckons the biggest weapon employers have is a lack of pay transparency. And she wants us to break down that wall and start asking our colleagues... Oi, do you mind if I ask, how much do you get paid? There's no reason to keep it secret from our colleagues because it benefits us all if we're open and transparent about that. So if you're worried about pay gaps in your own workplace, just start the conversation. Within what range are people being paid? Is it fair? If it's not, then you've got something to advocate for. Hack on Triple J. Ellie Grounds with that story. I want to talk a bit more about this. Karen Gately is a people management specialist. She's got a lot of experience in HR and she's with us now. G'day, Karen. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. So let's say you're out there, you're pretty sure that you're not being paid what you should be. Maybe your colleagues or even someone below you is getting more. What's the first thing you should be doing? 
I think it starts with understanding, um, you know, what is the typical pay range for your job in a similar organisation? What's that range of pay looking like? Now, where you get paid within that range is going to come down to your level of experience and performance. So start by, you know, being educated so that when you are asking your manager to give, you know, consideration to review your pay, you're at least going into the conversation armed with what you think is, is reasonable. And what happens if the boss says no? What do you do then? I think the first question is, you know, what what is um, the likely timing and when you're going to be willing to look at this again? But then also, you know, what would it actually take for me to be earning more? You know, is there training I need to do? Is there a higher standard of performance I need to bring? You know, get the employer to be thinking specifically around what would it actually take for you to, to be eligible for a higher rate of pay? And there does seem to be a lot of onus put on women and misconceptions that they aren't negotiating as much as they should be or as hard as they should be. But the onus is on bosses too, isn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think the harsh reality is that not every boss is proactive in the space. Not every boss is fair in the space. Um, so, you know, whilst we would like to think that they would be taking care of us, there's, there's no doubt that, you know, we also need to have the courage to speak up and, you know, be asking the right questions and, and asking for what we're worth. That's great advice there. HR specialist, Karen Gately, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Appreciate your insights. Thanks for having me. Hack on Triple J. That was HR specialist Karen Gately. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. Joe Lauder will be filling in for the next couple of days. I'll catch you later in the week. See you then.